this is a tradition that Swamiji started from the very beginning at Ananda, 1968, he had the first one. So um, this is the first, Swami hasn't always been present for Spiritual Renewal Week. Sometimes he was in India or Europe, but he always was present on this earth at, during Spiritual Renewal Week. So this is the first time that it's a, a new chapter in Ananda's history, and we're so glad that the momentum that he started, that so many, many great souls throughout Ananda have carried on all these years, is keeping us moving forward in his ray. So the theme of our week is it's dedicated to Swamiji, spiritual lessons from the life of Swami Kriyananda. And we will be sharing both personally and uh, principles that his life, how, in ways that his life enriched not only our lives, but the lives of millions of people throughout the world. So have a beautiful week, and <clears throat> we hope by the end you will feel a transformation within, because that's why Swami started Spiritual Renewal Week, so that each of us could stop in our daily lives and say, why am I here? What am I doing with my life? What do I want to accomplish? So welcome to you all, and... We hope to make personal connections with many, many of you, all of you, during this week. And now, to continue Swami's legacy, his music. Lift your hearts up to the Lord.
As Davy said, this is the first spiritual renewal week that we've had without Swami being in the body on the planet. On the other hand, many, many of us have had the experience with Swamiji's passing that he's actually more with us now than he was during the time he was in a body on the planet. Because for most of us, for most of the year, he was away anyway. But when he still maintained his body, we had the sense that, well, he's not with us. He's over in India or he's over in Italy or he's somewhere. But now we don't have to have that delusion anymore. He never was over in India or over in Italy. We just held the little delusion that he was limited to his body. And now we don't need to hold that delusion anymore. And so... A lot of people have felt him with them more strongly. Many, many people have had dreams of him, significant experiences since he's left the body. We're dedicating this week to talking about the spiritual legacy that he left. And to put it in context, it is not just about his personality or the events of his life or the things that he did, which are amazing in and of themselves. But it's really about one, I want to especially talk about the core values that he brought into this world. But I want to start by saying it isn't that this is just Swamiji as a unique individual and that he brought these spiritual qualities, we're all part of a spiritual family. And you might say that Swamiji is our spiritual father, our spiritual mother, and our DNA, our spiritual DNA comes from him. In the Bhagavad Gita, there's a beautiful line that says, all of Krishna's soldiers looked like Krishna. And that is reflective of the fact that when you are attuned to a great master like Krishna, or in our case, 
master, when you're attuned to them, it's as if more and more they begin to flow through you, even to the physical appearance, which is not all that important, frankly, but nonetheless. We had a friend who was with us, uh, who passed away many, many years ago, but he said something to Swamiji one time that was very interesting. He said, I can always recognize when a person is from Ananda, even if I haven't met them before. And Swami said, well, what do you mean? And he said, they have a certain quality to them that somehow is recognizable. Just as physically, brothers and sisters and cousins have certain physical traits that are recognizable. Devi has, it's like almost a siddhi, almost frightening siddhi, that she can, she can recognize people in very different circumstances. She'll look at a picture and say, oh, he must be related to him. He must be a brother or a cousin. And she's almost always right. The scary part is it extends to movies. And she'll look at some actor and she will say, oh, he was in, I don't know, uh, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. And I'll say, what? Oh, don't you remember? He was the taxi driver in Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> different ones of us channel God in different ways. <laughs> now, let's not stop there. That's not her only talent. <laughs> so, but... The point here being is that there's a certain aura, a certain um, similarity that we carry. Now, physical traits are not really very important. They are determined by our past lives. They're determined by our consciousness. They're determined by a lot of factors that we bring with us from the astral plane. And we think or maybe we don't, but the general population thinks that our appearance is according to our parents and the DNA that we get from them, the physical birth. It is to a certain extent, but we're born into a particular family because that's karmically exactly where we should be. And if we take on physical traits, they may seem to come from our parents, but in fact, they come as expressions of what we have developed in the past. And so even physically, we will resemble more or less what we looked like in recent past lives. So I want to talk about a little bit now about Swamiji's not so much physical DNA, but the spiritual DNA. First of all, for all of us, and especially true for him, our spiritual DNA comes from Master because Swamiji has explained that this great line of gurus have incarnated again and again and again, and they've come together as a grouping again and again, and they come particularly 
at very important times in the evolution of planetary consciousness. So they were together at the time of Kurukshetra. And at that time was a changeover from Dwapara Yuga descending into the beginning of Kali Yuga. And they came to help the consciousness of mankind prepare for that event. They were together at the time of Christ's birth, which was not exactly at the low point, but close to the low point of consciousness on this plane. They were together again at the time of William the Conqueror. Now, we might wonder about William the Conqueror, but at the time of William the Conqueror, it was the beginning of the changeover. It was setting into motion that aspect of consciousness that was going to be important for Dwapar Yuga. So it was the change of the way that people dealt with each other in society. It was the beginning of uh, kings having to follow rules and governments and charters. And so it was a very important changeover of the time. And so this group of avatars were together at those times. But interestingly, Swami was also a part of, of each of those. So at the time of Kurukshetra, and I'm going to talk a little about this because these are core qualities that Swamiji brought with him into this life so that we can understand his life in a deeper, more uh, uh, expansive <clears throat> Uh, uh, continuum than just, oh, well, he was a remarkable person, born in Romania and wrote 450 songs and started all these communities. Well, yes, he did. But why did he do that? It was because he had long prepared through incarnation after incarnation for the particular mission that he had in this life. And he is not alone. Many, many people in this room or watching on the internet also have been a part of this grouping that has come through time, through eras, incarnating together and working together to help society. So at the time of Kurukshetra, Swami had a very interesting birth. This is according to the book of Bragu which um, told him not only this, but a number of other things that were verifiable. It's hard to verify something that was seven or eight incarnations ago and several thousand years, but other things in that reading were of the present and were very verifiable. So let's take it for, uh, for granted at this point that this is a true rendition of the incarnation at that time. Swamiji at that time was a Raja, not of a large kingdom, but of a, a middle-sized or, or small to middle-sized kingdom. But in those days, there were certain alliances according to where you were and uh, where your kingdom was and certain uh, alliances that you had duties to uh, help fight on the side of your overlords. This continued all the way into medieval times. So you had a duty to fight on the side of your overlord 
And in this case, his overlord were the bad guys. They were not the Pandavas who were master and, and the other brothers, but they were the Kuravas. And so Swamiji felt that he could not dharmically continue to fight, uh, or, or he, he couldn't fight for the, for the wrong side. But because of certain restrictions, he also couldn't fight for the Kuravas. So he was in a bind, and he uh, resolved that by leaving his kingdom. And he went and he absolved himself from the rulership, um, and he went into the desert areas, and there he uh, met and was trained by a spiritual teacher. So you see, even those many, many incarnations ago, this strong clinging to Dharma and a relationship, um, even in this case, a somewhat more distant relationship to master in this group of avatars. Then at the time of William the Conqueror, who was master, master said that he was, <clears throat> also Sri Yukteswar incarnated at that time. At that time, Swamiji was the son of William, Henry I. And I won't go on about this because there's a whole book that's been written, um, Two Souls, Four Lives, about uh, Master and Swamiji in that lifetime and Master and Swamiji in this lifetime. So in that lifetime, uh, Master came in order to begin the change of consciousness in the West. And in that lifetime, no one master in one lifetime can complete his complete mission. There's just too much to do, especially if it's a world mission. And so Swamiji incarnated to help complete master's mission in that lifetime. And you can read all about it. The book is available, a little commercial break here. The book is available in the boutique. And if you haven't read it, I would suggest that you get it. It's a wonderful, wonderful read. But at that time, there was Master and uh, Swamiji as his son, and they were the rulers of England, and that was an extremely, extremely important um, incarnation. Then there is another incarnation where they were father and son, and uh, this was in Spain. Uh, Master was Ferdinand III, and uh, Swamiji was Alfonso X. Again, rulers in, in Castile and Leon. And you see some of the trends that carried on into Swamiji's lifetime. He was known, uh, for uh, Alfonso X, was known as the wise. And he helped translate many, many texts into the language. He was an astronomer and an astrologer. There's even a crater on the moon named after him. In this lifetime, Swamiji, one of his first interests was in astronomy. He was a composer, a poet and composer of songs. In that lifetime, he wrote 420 pieces of music, many of them dedicated to the Virgin Mary, which was Divine Mother. And so you see the trend of music following. You see the trend of worshiping the Divine Mother, the one of Swamiji's goals in this lifetime was to visit every place 
that had had an appearance of the Virgin Mary or the Divine Mother. And he visited Medjugorje and he visited Lourdes and he's visited, visited other places. And this year, just about this time, another month or so, he had planned to go to Mexico so that he could visit Guadalupe, which would have been the completion of the visitations of the Virgin Mary. Um, maybe next year, Davy and I will go to Mexico and go to Guadalupe and try to help be a part of the uh, completion of that. At any rate, you see these trends that carry from lifetime into lifetime. But now coming into this lifetime, uh, many of us know his story. Others of us don't know it so well. But he was born in Romania of American parents. His father was a, a high official in, at that time, Esso, which has become Exxon now. So he was an oil geologist. And his mother had been studying the violin and been studying in Paris. In Paris. So his parents were very refined people. And he was born into a family. And he grew up in his, by the time he was two or three years old, he was already speaking fluently three languages. And in his child's mind, he was very, very surprised when they visited America and heard people like taxi drivers or um, porters able to speak English. Because in his mind, he had stratified it according to tasks or uh, according to what people could do. So, so only uh, the American executives and his parents, they were the English speakers. And German, that was spoken by his German nanny. And Romanian, that was spoken by either the servants in their household or the people that he met in Romania. And so, but he, spoke, he grew up speaking these three languages, went on to learn many, many more languages, and has lectured in six or seven of them. So, again, the same trend from... Uh, from the past lives where in, you know, the Norman language came into English and there was a mixture there in Castile. He, he and Master brought some of the writings from Latin into the native language. So an interest in language, interest in music, interest in astronomy and science. But I don't want to talk so much about the form that things went in more about the particular qualities that Swamiji had early in his childhood. He had great intelligence. That was one of the first things that anybody who met him uh, kind of talks about or, or notices. And so uh, early in his childhood that came to the fore. He had great curiosity. He was always asking questions. In this lifetime, he did it of his parents and he did it of Master. He said he probably asked more questions of Master than all the other renunciates put together. He was constantly, and Master was happy to have those questions and he was always responding to them. And so he was always curious. One time there was a scene where 
he and his father were skiing. And all of a sudden, his father was coming down the slope and he said, Daddy, Daddy! And his father thought, well, there must be some emergency. And he kind of tried to stop and tumbled and kind of did a, whatever they call it, uh, kind of rolling over in the snow. And he said, what? What's wrong? He said, Daddy, why are the church bells ringing? And so Swamiji always had kind of a curiosity about life. He also had the ability to stand back from mass consciousness. And so what other people think didn't matter quite so much to him. And that was true when he was a child. And it became not only true, but very important in his role of the spiritual leader, spiritual parent of us all. Because if he had been too swayed by mass consciousness, he would not have been able to break away sufficiently from it to be able to get attuned to the teachings that were not accepted by the mass consciousness, especially of his time. We all have it a little bit easier because now Indian teachings and Vedantic uh, uh, concepts are coming not only into uh, the light, but they're actually entering into the mainstream of the consciousness of the, uh, of the planet, and especially in America. But at the time that Swamiji was coming of age, 1946, 1947, these concepts were completely uh, unknown to the general public. Uh, there were tiny little roots of them, but, but basically they were nothing like there is now. But continuing his childhood, he had, so he had this great intelligence, this great curiosity, this ability to stand back, but he had also a nobility and a great love of beauty. And those qualities also came forward into the way that he founded and led Ananda. Many, many of us have, I don't know, had experiences that not just uplifted our consciousness, but expanded the ability for us to function in the world in ways that we wouldn't have normally done. It's, it's like he came from a nobler race and he lifted us up into that. Probably dozens of people in this room have had the experience of going into some place, a restaurant or a shop or a uh, location, a vacation that they would never on their own have done. Many of us in the early years, because Swamiji also had, I can't call it a disdain for money. It wasn't a negation of it. It was just like money didn't really matter to him very much. It was just there as a tool. Well, we were all counting our pennies. So we would have the experience of going into a restaurant that was way above the price level of anything that we had been used to. And then the meal would get ordered, and these were in, were in the days before credit cards. So the meal would get ordered, and then we'd see the prices, the bill would come, 
and everybody would start turning to their neighbor, trying to borrow some money from them in, in order to pay the bill. But it was funny on one level, but the other level is that Swamiji was helping refine our consciousness in ways that it needed to be refined for us. We have to uh, go into areas of society, areas of the world, as Ananda's work, with complete disregard for whether they're uh, kings, nobles, prime ministers, servants, no regard for station. And if Swamiji had not lifted us up and, and helped us experience those things, then we would have a resistance to doing that. But he was completely at home in any level of society and he treated everyone just the same. And we've seen this over and over where he would make deep friendships with the various um, merchants that he would deal with. He had great loyalty, which was another of his qualities. And so if he made a friendship of a merchant, and for instance in, in uh, Italy, he would buy all his fruits and vegetables from this one stand where he had a friendship with the proprietor. And we would go out of our way, sometimes it would take an extra half hour or 45 minutes to get there to purchase some grapes and apples and a few things, which we could have gotten in the town of Assisi quite easily, but no, he wanted to visit his friends. So there was, once he made a connection, a heart connection, there was this deep loyalty. He didn't like to go to places like Costco, that basically the mindset of Costco was big, fast, and cheap. How many of you have deep friendships with the merchants in Costco? <laughs> well, Swamiji wasn't attracted to that. He was attracted to a different level. We had a beautiful instance of it in Los Angeles that happened where we, this was two or three years ago, we would walk in this particular area where there were a lot of shops and um, it was flat and Swamiji could walk by this time. He couldn't walk so easily. But it was a place he could walk and had some interesting shops. We had walked down about three blocks or so and uh, of this particular street and turned the corner and were coming back. And toward the end, we went into this particular shop. And the proprietress was uh, a woman from Italy originally. And so there was not only the language, but she, when we came in, she said, oh, I was so hoping that you would stop into my shop, that you would come in. And Swami said, well, well, why? She said, I was watching you and your group walk down the other side of the street, and there was just a light that surrounded you. And I was watching how you changed everybody that you passed. Somehow you made a connection. And I was so hoping that you would come into my shop. And they became instant friends. We went back to that shop a number of times. And, and Swamiji, uh, she came to a couple of programs. But it was that ability to connect with people. 
And it was an expression from his heart. You know, he always had a big chest and a very upright posture, not so much at the very end because of physical reasons, but when we all knew him when he was young, it was as if he had been trained by, I don't know, a five-star general about how to stand, you know. He had very upright posture and, and a big chest and a huge heart quality. You could hear it in his voice. His voice alone could change people. And so that heart quality expressed itself in terms of kindness, little acts of random kindness. He lived that way. And so that was another quality of his youth, now, that of his childhood. Now, as he began to grow up, then he began to bring out another deeper, more important aspect. And that was the deep, deep search for truth. As he has described, he tried to find it first in different ways. He tried to find it through art, he tried to find it through science, especially astronomy, early on. He tried to find it through politics. He tried to find it through social interactions. Because he had come up with a kind of a feeling that the way God was approached wasn't for him. So it, it was... And I, I know that I too had this same pattern. I suspect it was true of many of us that we came up and we weren't very religious, but we were somehow searching for something that was vaster and broader. So as he put it, and now it's become um, quite common to do this, he said, I was very spiritual, but I was not religious. And his mother despaired of that thinking that he had rejected God. He hadn't rejected God. He had rejected the form of God that did not seem to him to be all that valid. And so it was really only until he was about 18 or 19 that he had a great insight that connected him to God. And he's talked about this many times, the long walk on the beach in Charleston, when he realized that if there is a God, that God must be consciousness. It can't be some form. He's got to be consciousness. And if he's consciousness, then we too are conscious. And we derive our consciousness because of his consciousness. And therefore, our job in this life is to tune in more deeply to that consciousness. Now this was an insight that is absolutely, if, if one took it away from the particular and looked at it, it's absolutely Vedantic teachings. It's the essence, it's the core of Vedanta or Sanatana Dharma, the eternal religion, that we come from God, we're extensions of his consciousness, our job is to tune in to that consciousness to eventually merge back into it. That's the absolute core of Vedanta and the Sanatana Dharma. And Swamiji, with no training, nobody telling him, had that insight on his own. So it was like, Master said that when we get on the spiritual path at first, 
He said the soldiers of our past good karma, past the spiritual soldiers of past good karma come to the fore and they help us fight some of those early battles so that we can win them. And then they recede back again because in this lifetime our job is to continue our spiritual evolution. So these were Swamiji's incarnations of living these teachings and living with Master, coming to the fore in that very, very kind of unknown, uh, odd way, you know, out, completely out of left field, no context for, the, for that. But it was an insight that changed his whole future projection. And so after that, he determined to somehow find God. That led him to reading the autobiography. Reading the autobiography put him on a bus and he began his cross-country journey to meet Master. Now, on that bus trip, he said that he had two thoughts that were primary. See, now we've seen the childhood, past incarnations, childhood, early adult, and now is kind of the coming into the present consciousness of what his mission is in this particular incarnation. And so coming into the conscious mind more than just as a thought, but as a complete determination, he said were two things. One, this desperate desire to find God. And secondly, the desire to share what he got with everyone. And those two are the formative core of what Ananda is about. The, we can take away the form, we can take away the community, we can take away all the other things. What Ananda is about is the search for God and the desire to share the results of that search with others to help them and, and to help them lead happier, better lives. And so Swamiji brought that consciousness, that spiritual DNA, and he came then to Master. And Master then focused his consciousness. So it wasn't as if Master had to, I don't know, somehow instill in him proper thoughts and attitudes and um, behaviors. Swamiji came with all of those in potential form. But what Master did was to focus them. And so Master did a couple of things, or many, many things. And again, I'm saying this because this is not just for Swamiji. This is what is the formation, what the core is for all of us, for our, our spiritual lives and for Ananda, and for Ananda for the future that will go out. So when he came to Master, Master did several things. First of all, in the very first meeting, Swamiji asked if he could be his disciple, and Master accepted him. Now that is perhaps the single most important event in all the future of Ananda, is that connection between Swamiji and Master and the connection around discipleship. And so at that time, Master asked for Swamiji's unconditional love and Swamiji gave him that unconditional love. Now that too 
is the formation. If we could simply give Master our unconditional love and really mean it, our lives would pretty much be, our, our spiritual search would pretty much be at the end. Yeah, the clock might have to tick a few more times, but that unconditional love for God in the form of the Guru is the end game of the long, long series of matches. That's, that's the end of it. So that was the first thing that Master asked of him. The second was whether Swamiji would give his unconditional obedience to him. And here Swamiji hesitated because he didn't want to promise something that he felt that he couldn't sincerely follow through on because Swamiji had grown up kind of a rebel because the authority figures in his life, his parents to a certain extent, the people surrounding his parents, his friends, his professors, everybody had a world view that Swamiji knew because of the potential within him that came forth at that walk on the beach, he knew that they didn't know what they were talking about. And so authority figures to him represented people who seemed to be in charge but didn't know what they were doing. He knew when he read Autobiography of a Yogi that that was different with Master. There was a soul recognition. But nonetheless, he didn't want to promise something that he couldn't feel with complete integrity, even in his desperation to be accepted by Master. He couldn't promise something that was false. And so he said, what if I ever think that you're wrong? And Master, understanding where that question came from, answered in the most beautiful way. He said, I will never ask anything of you that God himself does not ask me to ask. And Swamiji said, then I give you my unconditional obedience. But that too is part of our DNA. See, Swamiji has never asked of us unconditional obedience. In fact, he's shied away. People, if you wanted to get advice from Swamiji, especially if you wanted to get serious spiritual guidance from Swamiji, you couldn't just ask for it. You had to demonstrate again and again your willingness for that. Because if you asked, he would give you a, a little bit. It'd be like, I don't know, being hungry, going into the table saying, I'm hungry, and he'd give you a little cookie and you'd go away happy. But if you really, really wanted to not just sit down to a meal, but sit down to the meals for the rest of your life, then you had to be very serious and very open to accepting his counsel. And he, he would give it very reluctantly. He said sometimes he waited for years to give somebody the most obvious piece of advice. We've had many instances of this where there'd be about 50 people going to him saying, this person is just outrageous. You've got to tell that person that they've got to quit behaving the way that they're behaving. So I said, okay, okay. 
And then a year would go by and two years would go by and five years would go by with the same behavior patterns. And he would never talk directly to that person. He would often talk about the problems, but he'd talk in a lecture like this. And he would never look at the person while he was talking. He would look away. And that person was probably thinking, yeah, he's really giving it to them. They really need it. They're acting outrageously. But only until that person, the window of their consciousness was open to serious correction or serious advice, would he attempt to do that. Very, very careful. So this cooperative obedience, as he translated it into the rules for the Sevaka order, was a very, very important principle to him. But then Master focused his consciousness, first at that meeting, but then Master told him what his life mission was. He said, you, are need, you need to write, you need to edit, and you need to lecture. And Swamiji said, yes, but Master, and Master said, you might as well get used to it, that's what you have to do. Because Swami didn't want to put himself forward, but nonetheless, obviously. And when Swamiji accepted that guidance, did he ever do it? I mean, writing 150 books, lecturing, I don't know, 5,000 as a guess, lectures, editing. Sometimes he would edit a page for 50 different times in order to get it exactly right so that it could communicate. So it was really what Master was doing was empowering him as a channel. Master said that he, out of the eight qualities of God, particularly resonated with three of them. He said he particularly resonated with love and joy and wisdom. And you can certainly say the same of Swamiji, love and joy and wisdom. So those three qualities are kind of the DNA of Ananda as a whole. So if you want to get in tune with Master, you want to get in tune with Swamiji, then get in tune with universal love. Get in tune with universal joy. Feel it in your life. Uh, one of Master's most advanced disciples, Oliver Black, Yogacharya Oliver Black, said that he surrounded himself with a bubble of joy and he never let anything penetrate that bubble of joy. When Swamiji was walking down that street, he had a bubble of light around him and and a person who'd never met him could recognize that so love and joy and wisdom so wisdom comes from a combination of the intellect or discrimination not just intellect and the heart and that's another thing that master did for Swamiji to help focus him he said you're too intellectual you need to develop devotion. And so Swamiji knew that that was true. And he spent hours every day chanting and developing devotion. And after a, not very long, a year or two, one time uh, some of the monks were, were walking through a garden and Swamiji was there and somebody mentioned something about Swamiji Walter, as Master uh, called him. And Master said, look how I've been able to change Walter. 
See, it all comes from the divine, but it comes from unconditional love and unconditional obedience or attunement. So that's what Master, above all, taught Swamiji. Discipleship, devotion, deep attunement, and then focused his life mission. He didn't do communities, didn't say that Swamiji had the duty or responsibility to found communities. And Swamiji said that, but Master always encouraged it in him. Master, toward the end of his time on this planet, talked over and over again about the need for communities. And Swamiji was the only one of the disciples who really picked that up. But Swamiji said he didn't, Master didn't give him that mission at that time because in the organization that he was in, it, it uh, wasn't, wasn't recognized as anything important. And if Master had told him at that time to do that, then there would have been tension. Tension eventually happened anyway, and Swamiji had to be um, rejected out of SRF, and that freed him to do the great mission of communities. But you see how this spiritual DNA that he has brought, followed from past incarnations into his childhood, into his growing up, his youth, his time with Master, and then followed throughout the rest of his life. Now, I'm going to end my talk the way Swami always ends his talk, with pretty much ending after he came to Master. You know, in the new path, we checked. That book is 529 pages long. There's one chapter, eight pages, devoted to the time after Master <laughs> of Ananda. And it's like, here's, here's what Master did, here's what Master trained. Oh, yeah, and I did some other things too. And end of the book. So the rest of the week, we're going to talk more about the other things that he did. But I wanted to kind of show us what were the core values of, of Swamiji. And I'll end by saying that he summed up kind of the core values of himself and of Ananda as a whole with these two. People are more important than things. Meaning that it doesn't matter so much what we do or the projects. What matters is the individual and their spiritual growth. And he demonstrated it over and over and over again in various ways so that we could understand it and run Ananda in the future in that way. And he also said, Yata Dharma Stata Jaya. Where there is adherence to right action, there is victory. On those two, one could call them love expressed to the individual and absolute right action. On those two, those are the legs on which Ananda stands, on which Swamiji stood, and on which all of us, if we can incorporate that into our DNA, it will be our pathway to liberation. Good morning, everyone. About a year before Swami passed, we were present when he was 
being interviewed for a magazine. And the uh, interviewer asked him the question, what do you think is your legacy? And at first, because he was a very humble man, he said, well, I'm not sure that I have a legacy. But then he realized that wasn't enough for an article. And so he said, well, I suppose you, he started throwing out some things. I suppose you could say the truths I expressed in my books or uh, the cooperative communities and living together in harmony and working together in harmony and kindness. And then he paused and you could feel his mind was tuning into a, a deeper current. And he said it with a different quality in his voice. He said, I think my legacy is seeing things in new ways. And when he said that, I just felt this, uh, like a wave of truth move through the room and certainly come to rest in my heart because I thought that really sums up what Swami's spiritual legacy is, seeing things in new ways. And, you know, I don't even like to use the word legacy too much because it's misleading. Legacy means something that's been given to us from the past. But there was a beautiful book that was very popular some years ago about King Arthur. And it was called The Once and Future King by T.H. White. And that's such a beautiful way to describe Swamiji, the once and future. Because what he brought, his legacy, was not something that was carried over from the past, but he brought us something from the future, something of higher consciousness that we need to move towards, not carry on from what has gone behind us. And so when looking at this simple statement, my legacy is to see things in new ways, I began thinking about that and for subsequently after he said it. And I saw so many different ways that he did this. And I'd like to just share a few of them with you this morning. One was, of course, his autobiography which he renamed towards the end of his life, The New Path. First it had been The Path, but then he changed it. The New Path. And he gave us a reason for that change. There's a beautiful paragraph in that book where he says, I have always said that I only want to convert you to your own higher self. But if you are seeking truth, I will add without hesitation that the possibilities offered to you from this new dispensation is this is a new path to God. And so what is this new path to God that he talks about in his autobiography, that he has written many books reflecting it in different ways? Well, one aspect of this being what he brought was a new path to God was the combination of the ancient science of Kriya Yoga, 
wants in future, from a higher age, from the past, bringing us forward into Dwapara Yuga. So the science of Kriya Yoga for awakening inner energy, but not stopping there. You can go to India and read all sorts of books or go to one of our metaphysical bookstores, all sorts of books about awakening inner energy and kundalini and the chakras. But what is that doing to help humanity? Taking the awakening of that inner energy and then putting it into dynamic creative service to benefit others. And that's his name, Kriyananda. Joy through Kriya and joy through action. And that's why this is a new path to God, because it's showing it's not just enough to have inner experience in meditation. What are you creating with it? How are you expressing it in your daily life? How are you changing the lives of other people through your inner practices? And so this is one way that this is a new path to God. Another way that Swami was a groundbreaker, seeing new ways of uh, doing things, was in this path to God, it's the combination of a solitary individual search for God, meditation, prayer, devotion, combining that with the community way of life. It's very unusual. There are many monasteries that have little walls around them and everyone goes into their little cell. We were, we'll be going to uh, Italy in um, October with a group of pilgrims and we'll go to the beautiful monastery of San Marco in Firenze that a great monk uh, and artist did these remarkable frescoes in each one of these little cells. And you walk down the corridor and there's hundreds of them. And there's a masterpiece and each one of them has a fresco on the wall. And But this is what the life was. You went into your little cell, you went into your little cave in the Himalayas, you went into your little kutir in the forest, but you never related to others. But Swami said, no, take the joy and the feeling of God's presence in meditation and then live the life with community. And this community aspect, again, seeing things in new ways. When Ananda was first starting in the first couple of years, we were trying to get building, or building permits and also health permits, all the things you need to do to develop property. We went into the building department and they, we said, well, we're going to be developing a community out on this piece of land in the North San Juan Ridge. That's where we are, in case you didn't know. And, uh, and the, we were sitting there with Swamiji in the planning department and the, the woman got out her big, thick rule book and she started thumbing through and she goes, oh, you are a subdivision. We'll put you under the subdivision category. We said, no, 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 we're not a subdivision. So, okay, okay. And she flipped through and she goes, you're a condominium. And we said, no, we're not a condominium. And there was no category to put it in. And finally, they found something called a planned unit development, which was sort of close, but not really on the mark. But now, all these many years later, that concept of community, because Swami saw things in new ways, it's established now. And recently, there was a beautiful article about Ananda in the local newspaper, and they quoted 
much to our village manor, manager, Abman's surprise, because he works with these people regularly, they quoted the head of the planning department for Ananda in Nevada County, saying that Ananda Village is a paradigm, is a model, perfect example for creating a sustainable way of life with a group of people on rural property. And that was a long 40-year battle to get that <laughs> to be accepted. But Swami saw it from the beginning. He saw things in new ways. And he knew that even though people thought in terms of condominiums and subdivisions, that's not what we were. And he saw it. And that's why this new path to God, combining a deep inner life with this creation of a social life. And this is the model for the new age. Now, there was another phrase in that quote from the path where Swamiji said, if you are seeking truth, I, without hesitation, I encourage you to explore the possibility of this new dispensation, which is a new path to God. Well, Swami wrote The New Path. He also wrote a little booklet called A New Dispensation. And in it, he talks about a new expression of the guru-disciple relationship, that the grace that comes, but not passively. So often, people in a guru-disciple relationship traditionally, and you particularly see this in India, it's very passive. Oh, Guruji, Guruji will do this for me. Look what Guruji did. But what Swami was trying to get us to see, and he wrote another book about this called recently called Cooperating with Grace. So discipleship is not about just saying, oh, Lord, whatever you want, I'm your humble servant. But it's saying, as Master said, I will reason, I will will, I will act but guide thou my reason, will, and activity to the proper end in all things. And so as disciples, that's what Swami was talking about, this new path, this new dispensation. We need to see our discipleship actively. I am your disciple, Master. You tell me. I will do it. I will, I will use the best of my abilities, but then I will pour my energy into it. And Swamiji gave us the understanding of that new dispensation, of working with the grace. You know, when you, he said it over and over, and I never, you know, it, 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 in retrospect, so much of Swamiji said, I couldn't understand it at the time. But with his passing, I understand what he was meaning. He kept saying, people say I've done this and that. I haven't done anything. Master has done it all. And that's the cooperating with grace, saying, I will do my utmost, just as he did at that Beverly Hills garden party when Master gave the resounding talk, the definitive talk about launching the World Brotherhood Communities Movement. And Swami vowed, I will do my utmost to make this a reality. That's discipleship. That's the new dispensation. There is a grace coming to this world now from master, from in our line of gurus, but that grace will not take come into fruition if we don't receive it and act on it. So a new path to God, a new dispensation. Swamiji also gave 
a new understanding of religion. Religion in the New Age, another book that he wrote. But he, he took, based on Master's commentaries and his work previous, he took all the great scriptures of the world, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, even in his last year's Patanjali, and he demystified them. Master said religion should be applicable on all levels of your being, mental, physical, and spiritual. And he took these great teachings and he made them so that you could understand them. I, Before coming to Swamiji and Ananda, I had read the Bhagavad Gita, I had read the Bible, I had read Urubayat of Omar Khayyam, I had not read Patanjali, I admit. But I read them, but I knew I was not understanding them. It was like watching a movie in a foreign language without subtitles. You can see that something's going on. You can see there's a great drama, and it's very meaningful to the characters, but you don't know what's going on. Well, that's what it was like until they opened up, Master and Swamiji opened up religion for our time so that we could understand it. A dear friend of ours in India was telling us that, she said, I grew up with the Bhagavad Gita. I'd read it. My parents quoted it to me all the time. But she said, I knew in my heart I never understood it until I read the essence of the Bhagavad Gita. And then I wept because then I knew what that book was about. And that's the religion of this age. It's one time someone said to Master something about your path is a mystical path. And he said, it's not a mystical path. It's a very practical path. Even though it encompasses meditation and inner prayer and so forth. But what he was saying was, this is not airy-fairy. This is grounded. People need to understand it with their minds. They need to feel it with their hearts. And they need to be able to live it. And Jatish and I had an interesting opportunity some years ago, we were going back to the Midwest to visit relatives in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And someone from Ananda had a connection with a big talk radio show in Kansas City, the biggest one in the city. And somehow we were able to get on their afternoon show. We were scheduled, and they told us it was going to be talking about community. So we thought we could do that. So we got there. But it was a setup. It wasn't about communities. There was, it was supposed to be a debate. And uh, us against this fundamental Christian who was the successor of Jerry Falwell. So there we were. And the show was supposed to be one hour. And this man, he was a good man, we could tell. He, he, his, he, he believed what he was living. But he started at us, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only And we just answered him the way Swami and Master explained the Bible. And every time he came at us, we'd just take a little side term. And every time he came around, and the call board started just lighting up. It looked like a Christmas tree. Bing, 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 bing. And there were so many calls and people. And we just kept answering this man rationally, according to Master and Swami's explanation of the Bible. And finally, uh, they, there were so many calls, they extended it from one hour to two hours. And the calls kept coming in. And people were saying, it's so wonderful to hear this open-minded approach to what the Bible means and what Christ says. And finally, the man, I mean, it was actually quite touching because 
he was losing his ability to argue anymore, and finally he just said on the air, you people scare me. (laughs) Because he said, everything I believe, you have a clear explanation, and I don't see a way around it. And afterwards, he walked us out to our car, and he was talking with us and so forth. But it was an amazing experience. It wasn't us. It was just sharing this new expression of religion that has been given to us through Swami, through a new way of seeing things, and so that we can move forward and help the world see things in these new ways. And then... Another new way of seeing things, a new renunciate order, the Naya Swami order. How amazing, what courage, especially being in India with the tradition of the Swamis and the yogis, to say, you know, that doesn't work anymore. Let's try a new approach. And in doing that, in Swami's wonderful little book, the Naya Swami order, he talks about the old forms of renunciation. And they were about, um, as Swamiji puts it, world denying, not this, not that. And, you know, you go to places where there's a monastic tradition uh, still clinging a bit, such as Italy. And, uh, but you see, by and large, you see these old people that have no joy, or just a sense of burden, just sort of walking the, you know, the monks and the nuns walking the street of Assisi, uh, streets of Assisi, and you just think, I don't want to be like that. And then there's the Naya Swami order, the new Swami order, that isn't world-denying, but samadhi-affirming. And Swami even changed the color, for heaven's sake, from orange, and he explains it, or geru, that orange is a color both of authority and fire, like you're burning up the self, but you are an authority. And he said, the new, the nice Swami order is about neither of those. It's not about authority. You better listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. It's about sharing. And that's what Swami said, I never teach, I share. And so sharing And rather than fire burning up the self of the orange, the blue color is about sharing and it's about sympathy and expansiveness. And so these are the new forms that this new renunciate order has taken. So it's just amazing. And I could go on with many, many different examples, but these are the highlights of a new way of seeing things a new path to God, a new form of discipleship, a new approach to religion, a new approach to a life of renunciation. I mean, it's staggering. The ability to see past existing forms and practices and to express them in a new way, to see things in a new way, that one little simple sentence and the richness that can come out of it. But... Let us remember, too, that throughout his life, and particularly in the last, I'd say, five or ten years, he emphasized over and over world cataclysms, difficulty, depression, and these were all from 
from Master. I mean, it wasn't like he drew it out of nowhere. Master had talked about it in his lifetime. But remember what we said earlier on, that Swami was talking, his legacy is not only from the past, but it's coming to us from the future. And that future, even though he warned us, tried to get us to prepare, and most of it's been done in many different ways, but also he held out not only the thought that this difficulty, this tunnel of challenges will be coming, but at the end of that tunnel, there is a new dawn, one of his songs, a new tomorrow, one of his songs. Let leave the past, a new tomorrow waits for all who understand. So all of the things that we've been talking about, a new path to God, a new way of discipleship, communities, understanding religion, renunciation, all of these are paving stones that lead us through that tunnel of darkness to the new tomorrow. So he gave us from the future hope for a better world. And he gave us the way to bring about that better world. And these are the gifts that he gave us through music, through poetry, through uh, plays, through books, through lectures. Hope for a better world. And he calls to us from the future, the one cent future Swamiji. And he calls to us and he says, live what I have given you. Practice what I have taught you. Listen and reread what I've written. And you will be able to be a citizen of that new tomorrow where the dawn, a new dawn arises and a beautiful sunrise shines on our earth with a vision of the future and a vision of possibility because Swamiji saw things in a new way. When the dawn breaks and then the morning sends the sun high in the sky, who would hide from heaven's glory? Oh!